So I encourage everyone to get a Bible. Let's turn to Luke chapter 5. This is the call of the first disciples, as you uh, recognize in Luke chapter 5. And so let's read verses 1 through 11 in Luke chapter 5, the call of the first disciples. Now it was so that as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake Gennesaret. And saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. And when he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said, Master, we have told all the night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I'll let down the net. And when he had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat, and they came and helped them, and they filled both the boats so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid, from now on you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. Now let's see what we just saw in that context. The setting of this is in the lake Gennesaret, the Sea of Galilee. Here we have a map of the Sea of Gal- I mean of uh, Palestine, and toward the northern end of the Jordan River, opposite of the Salt Sea, is the Sea of Galilee. Here we have a closer look at the Sea of Galilee, and at the northern end of the Sea of Galilee, we have the city of Capernaum. That land that was to the south and to the west of Capernaum was often called Gennesaret. The sea itself was called the Sea of Tiberias. It was in that setting where Jesus talks and calls his first disciples. Look at verse 3. As a crowd begins to press around him, he enters a boat and goes out a little ways from the land that he might teach the people, according to verse 3. Peter and his fishing partners were washing their nets after an unsuccessful night. That implies they're through. That implies that they're done. They're ready to go home. It's been a very unsuccessful night. Then Jesus tells Peter to launch out into the deep and cast his net for a catch. Notice at verse 4, he says, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now notice at verse 5, Peter did so even though it hadn't worked all night long. They've been casting their nets and casting their nets, casting their nets and casting their nets and have caught nothing at all. But when Jesus says, cast out your net, Launch out into the deep and let down your net for a catch. He said, at thy word, he would do that. Now I want you to notice the results. The results were absolutely amazing. Notice at verse 6 beginning, that they caught so many fish that there was a great number of fish that they filled both, they filled their net and it began to break. They motioned for their partners of the other boat to come and they filled both boats and both boats began to sink. Unbelievable. An amazing result to the catch of fish. Now notice at verses 8 and 9, Peter reacts in deep humility. That he falls down at Jesus' knees in the boat. 
He falls down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Let's say more later. He is not saying, I don't want to be around you, Lord. But it is a, he's cognizant of his own weakness before the Lord. It is a statement of deep humility before the Lord. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And then verses 10 and 11, what we see is, the disciples then forsook all, and they followed after Christ. Now we learn a great deal from that context. And so let's look at Luke chapter 4, or chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. I want us to focus on one particular word here. Let's go back to verse 4. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon Peter answered and said, Master, we have toiled all night and have caught nothing. Nevertheless, he said, nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. Let's talk about that word, nevertheless. The word nevertheless is a word of contrast. The English standard and the American standard translate that but. We've toiled all the night and caught nothing, but at your word, I'll let down the net for a catch. It is a word of contrast. Bauer, Bedag says, it means in spite of. And what that means is there are some things that are true on the one hand, and in spite of that, we're going to do what seems to be contrary to that. What are we talking about? Well, for example, here's the thing that is true. What is true is we have fished all night long. What is true is we have caught nothing. What is true is we are washing our nets, which implies we're done, we're finished, we're ready to go home. Nevertheless, in spite of that, here is what's true. We're still going to launch out into the deep. We're still going to cast our nets for a catch, and we're doing it at your word, because you said so. Nevertheless. Now with that in mind, I want us to talk about this concept of nevertheless, some lessons in discipleship. Lessons in discipleship, nevertheless. Here's one of the lessons I learned from this context in Luke chapter 5. Keep your Bible or a finger or a marker there at Luke 5. We'll keep coming back again and again, though we'll go to other passages. Here's one of the first things I learned from that. We should obey even if it seems unreasonable. We should obey even if it seems unreasonable. Quite often in our day and time, if something seems unreasonable, we're not ready to obey. But in the case of Peter and the other apostles, the request of Jesus must have seemed quite unreasonable. They did use the word nevertheless, didn't they? You see, they had fished all night and they had caught nothing. These are professional fishermen after all. What does a carpenter know about fishing? You put yourself in that place. You're a professional at doing what you're doing and you fished all night and you've caught nothing and a carpenter comes along and says, try it again and I think you'll get some. What does he know about that? Keep in mind, this was early in the process of calling the disciples and yet Peter had seen enough to have strong faith that in spite of the failure of the night, in spite of catching nothing, nevertheless, at your word, I'll let down the net for a catch. I want to suggest to you it is not our place to question and to doubt. You are familiar with all of these passages that talk about it is not our place to question and to doubt. Jeremiah chapter 10 and in verse 23, it is not in man that walketh to direct his own footsteps. It is not my place to question and to doubt. Isaiah 55, God says, my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways and your ways and my thoughts and your thoughts. 
God's smarter than we are. And you are familiar with Proverbs 16 in verse 25. There is a way that seems right unto man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. It is not our place to question and to doubt. Romans chapter 11 and in verse 34, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? In other words, who's wise enough to sit in judgment on God and advise God, here's how this ought to be done. I think you're wrong about this. It's not our place to question and to doubt, but it is our place to believe and to do. You see, he is our creator and we are his creatures. He is our God and we are mere men. And he is our Lord and we are his servants. It is not our place to question and to doubt. Let's talk about some Bible characters that were asked to do what seems to be unreasonable. Well, put yourself in their place and you may have struggled with that. In the previous hour at the Zoom meeting for those in Kentucky, we looked about believing God. And we sometimes struggle believing God. And some of these very passages we dealt with. Let's go back to Romans chapter 4. We were there earlier this morning. Here was Abraham who was told he was going to have a son when he was an old man and his wife was old. Do you remember from Romans 4 without our reading that again? Romans 4 beginning at verse 16 that Abraham was about 100 years old. Sarah was old as well, well beyond the bearing years. And God says you're going to have a son. That seems unreasonable to accept, doesn't it? For mere human reasoning. Here's another case. What about Genesis chapter 22 with Abraham when God asked him, would you sacrifice your son? I want you to take your son, your only son, and I want you to sacrifice him. That seems unreasonable. You want me to kill my son? We must obey even if it seems unreasonable. That's a lesson in discipleship. What about Ezra chapter 10? You remember when Ezra came on the scene, he found out that people had intermarried with people they should not marry, the foreigners and the pagans within the land, and Ezra, by the direction of God, tells them to separate themselves from their wives, by whom they had children, verse 44. Seems unreasonable from a human standpoint, doesn't it? You're asking us to leave our families just to be right with the Lord? Or what about 2 Kings chapter 5 in the case of Naaman? To go dip seven times to be cured of your leprosy. And it had to be the Jordan River at that. Can you imagine? How unreasonable that must have seemed. In fact, Naaman said, Are not the Aban and the Farper rivers better than all the rivers of Damascus? They were asked to do what seemed to be unreasonable. And I want to suggest to you that God asks us to do what seems to be unreasonable at times. For one, it might be baptism. For you, you may have been baptized already. You say, that wasn't a big problem. But for some, that's a big issue for them. Having trouble being baptized. Because you see, if I admit that I need to be baptized, I have family that wasn't baptized. And consequently, that's admitting they're lost. And I don't want to do that. And so God's asking me to do what seems to be unreasonable. God may ask you to do something else that seems like divorce for only one cause, Matthew 19 in verse 9, or 5 and 32. You mean I can't just get a divorce when we're not getting along and there's only one cause for divorce? That seems unreasonable to have to abide by that. Well, here's something else It may seem unreal. Not forsaking under distress in Hebrews chapter 10. We've repeatedly pointed out from Hebrews chapter 10, the context argues for persecution being the thing that causes one to forsake in that context, both historical and textual context. And it would seem unreasonable that you're expecting me not to forsake when I'm under stress of persecution. Sometimes God asks us to do what seems to human reasoning to be unreasonable, maybe withdrawing from the disorderly. 
We talked about that earlier in our study this morning. That seems unreasonable. You expect me to withdraw from them and, and cut off socializing with them to try to bring them back. That seems unreasonable. Or like Luke chapter 17, 1 to 5, forgiving if someone repents. You don't understand how I've been done wrong and how I've been sinned against and you're asking me to just forgive? God sometimes asks us to do that which is unreasonable. So what are we learning? Nevertheless, sometimes we learn, we learn from this that sometimes we have to obey even if it seems unreasonable. And secondly, we need to try even if it seems impossible. God wants me to try even if it seems impossible. Now let's take the case of Peter. Peter must have thought about failure here. He must have had that on his mind. He had fished all night and he had caught nothing at all. The word nevertheless suggests there is a contract. It suggests I'm going to act contrary to how things look and how things seem. He must have thought about failure here. He was acting solely on his faith in Jesus. Nevertheless, at thy word I'll let down the net for a catch. Now what Peter is saying is I'm going to try in spite of some things. I'm going to try in spite of the failure of the night. I'm going to try in spite of the possible failure of the future. I may put out my net and I may not catch anything. But I'm going to try. You see, by trying he caught fish. Which would not have happened otherwise. Suppose Peter had said, now we've caught, we've tried all night, and I know fishing, I'm, I'm a professional fisherman, and I'm with professional fishermen, and I know we won't catch any fish, so I'm not going to try. He wouldn't have caught any fish. But by trying, he caught a great load of fish. You see, if he had not tried, he would have failed. He would have failed as a fisherman, and he would have failed as a disciple. By trying, he succeeded. I want to suggest you must try and to do things that we're afraid we're going to fail in. Perhaps there's something in your life that you're afraid you're going to fail in. And we've got to be willing to try. Like what? Well, maybe just living the Christian life. I'm sure Brother Galloway, who preaches in Kentucky, just like me in home Bible studies at times, have had uh, studies where somebody is ready to obey the gospel and yet they turn away because they say, you know what? I just don't think I can do it. I can't remain faithful. I don't think I can live the Christian. I don't think I can live like the standard, so I'm not even going to try. Some are afraid to try to live the Christian life. Seems impossible. Some are afraid to try to bring others to Christ. I'm afraid if I try that it's going to destroy our relationship, and I'm afraid it'll destroy the friendship, and I'm afraid they'll get mad and they'll turn away and it'll just be unsuccessful. I'm not even going to try. I'm not even going to talk to them about the Lord. For some, it's they're afraid to try to correct and restrain their children. You see, as they get to be in the teenage years and their uh, high school years, I'm afraid to put the clamps down. I'm afraid to tell them no. I'm afraid to have rules and restrictions. I'm afraid they'll rebel, and I'm afraid it'll make things worse. So I kind of give them freedom to do whatever they want. They're afraid of failure. Some are afraid to try any teaching effort. Some churches are afraid to try a radio program or a bulletin or whatever the case. Afraid it won't work. It'll fail. Nobody will listen. Nobody will read it. It won't do any good. And so we're afraid of failure. Sometimes we're afraid to teach a Bible class. I'm afraid I can't do it. I'm afraid I'll mess it up and I'm afraid I'll fail. So I don't, I don't want to even try to teach a class. 
Or for some of the men taking part in worship, I'm afraid to try to lead singing, leading prayer. I'm afraid of that because I'm afraid of failure. Some are afraid to forgive. I'm afraid to turn loose and let go because I'm afraid a year later I'm going to, or a month later, I'm going to want to bring that back and, and I can't turn loose of it, so I'm not even going to try to forgive you. I'm not even going to work on it. Some are afraid to be the mate they want to be. You see, if I, if I try to be the loving and caring mate that I ought to be, I'm afraid it won't be received well, and I'll look foolish. I'm not even going to try to be the mate, because my mate's not going to be what they should be. It's not going to work. And so we're afraid of failure. I want to remind you in Matthew 25 and 25, do you remember the one talent man? He failed by saying, I was afraid. What are we learning from Luke chapter 5? Here's what we're learning. Nevertheless, obey even if it seems unreasonable. Try even if it seems impossible. But here's the third thing. We must continue on even if we're weary. Continue on even if we're weary. Peter and the other fishermen must have been tired. Had to be. The text says at verse 5, they had toiled all night. We've toiled all the night, he said. Things had not gone like they had hoped. Go back in Luke chapter 5, they toiled all night. Verse 5 says, and have caught nothing. They have to be disappointed. They have to be discouraged. I would be. I'm not a fisherman, but when I go and I don't catch anything, it's discouraging. Wasted time. They had to be disappointed and discouraged. It seems like all has been useless. And if ever they thought about quitting their job of fishing, this would have been the time. Whatever it is that you do, your occupation that you have, there's probably been a time you've thought about just throwing up your hands and quitting. I'm, I'm done with this. I'll have to admit, perhaps Brother Galloway is the same way. There have been times I've thought about just throwing up my hands and quitting preaching. Just, just give up on preaching. Not give up on the Lord, but just quit preaching. But it's never been when things are going well. It's always when things are not going well. When you're discouraged. When you're disappointed. And you're, all your efforts seem to be for naught. If they ever thought about quitting, this is the time. And yet Jesus said, keep on fishing. They're washing their nets over here. And Jesus said, go back out and let, out, let down your nets for a catch. Keep on fishing. I want to suggest to you that it's easy to become weary and discouraged. It may be for you, life's just not going like you planned. Whose life does go like it's planned? And you may be thinking, you know what? My life's just not going like I planned. I, I wanted to go in this direction. It seems like it's going in every other direction. You face unexpected difficulties. Who hasn't done that lately? And you try to make a step forward, and you try to go forward, and it seems like every time you make a step forward, you get knocked back down. It may be in your business. It may be in your family. It may be in your spirituality. You make two steps forward, and you get knocked back down. You're tired. You may be weary with yourself and your lack of progress. You thought you would have been further along spiritually or maybe financially, whatever it may be. It may be that you're weary with your family, the lack of cooperation, their lack of progress. Things are not going well in the family, their faithfulness. It may be that you're weary with the efforts to try to influence someone else. You try to have an impact on your neighbor or fellow Christians, and it seems to be useless. And you're tired, and you're ready to throw up your hands and quit. 
And what I want to suggest to you is that the Bible tells us that the, the weary, the tired, and the discouraged must continue on. Let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. That's the point of chapters 10 to 13. As I look at the book of Hebrews, I divide it into two parts from our own purpose. Chapters 1 through 9 is the foundation on which the encouragement is, true. 10 to 13 is the encouragement. Keep on keeping on, don't give up. So that's the point of chapters 10 to 13. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 10 beginning at verse 23. Here is this encouragement to weary Christians who are tired, they're persecuted. They're ready according to chapter 12 to throw up their hands and quit. Notice what he says. Look at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering. Drop down to verse 35. 35. Therefore do not cast away your confidence which has great reward. For you have need of endurance that after you've done the will of God you may receive the promise. Don't give up. Keep on. Look at verse 39. We are not of those who draw back to perdition but those who believe to the saving of the soul. Don't give up. Keep on keeping on. Go to chapter 12. Same book. After listing faith's great hall of fame in chapter 11, therefore he says, verse 12, chapter 12, verse 1, we also, since we're surrounded by a great cloud of witness, let us lay aside every weight and sin which does so easily ensnare us, and let us run with endurance. Don't give up. Run with endurance the race that is set before us. Finally, notice verse 12. Therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the knees which are feeble. That's a description of people who are discouraged, ready to toss in the towel. Don't give up. Don't quit. Continue on even if you're weary. Paul would argue in 1 Corinthians 15 in verse 58, Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for you know your neighbor is not in vain in the Lord. And the Apostle Paul would encourage us in Galatians chapter 6 that we... In due season we'll reap if we faint not. Do not grow weary in well-doing, he said. Don't grow tired in doing what's right. Don't become discouraged and throw up your hands and quit because in due season we'll reap if we do not faint. Don't ever quit, but launch back out into the deep. Nevertheless, Peter said, obey even if it seems unreasonable. Try even if it seems impossible. Continue on even if you're weary. Here's another lesson from this same context. And that is be humble even if it is hard. Be humble even if it is hard. I want to suggest to you that for Peter, humility may not have been real easy for him. Now we're going to come to the text, verse 8 in a moment, if you want to go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 5, if you've left that, and we're going to look at his humility. But I want to set a kind of a backdrop that humility may not have been real easy for Peter. And you say, why do you say that? Well, do you remember the, dis the disciples arguing over the greatness of the, who would be the greatest? It was a materialistic concept of the kingdom that Jesus is going to have a material kingdom. There's going to be somebody sitting at his right hand, somebody at his left. And there's going to be prominent positions in the kingdom and reckon who's going to get those slots. Though there is some conjecture, Peter's name had to come to the top of the list somewhere. What would that do to his ego to hear some are thinking I may sit at the right hand or at least I get the treasury position or something. I, I bet Matthew gets that, but maybe Peter gets the right hand by the throne. That had to stroke his ego some. 
But he was a man who had confidence in himself. That's evident in Matthew chapter 26, verses 31 and 30 through 33. When Jesus said, all of you may be made to stumble, Peter said, he wouldn't, not me. That's confidence in himself. Well, you'll even deny me this very night. No, not me. I'll even die for you, he said. Quite confident in himself. Not only did he have confidence in himself, but he had confidence to act. Remember, he was the one in John 18 that drew his sword and cut off Michael's right ear. He was a man of confidence. Humility may not have been real easy. And you remember he said, I'll never stumble and I will never deny you. I'll even die for you. I'm just trying to paint a picture that humility may not have been real easy for Peter. But I want you to notice that he humbly bowed before Jesus. Go back to verse 8 of Luke chapter 5 if you've left that. And when Peter saw this, what did he see? He saw the great catch of fish. Remember how great it was? The nets began to break. They filled one boat and it begins to sink. Filled another boat and it begins to sink. And when Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now what was his reason? He's astonished at the power of Jesus. That I've been fishing all night long and have caught nothing. And all he did was say, cast out your net for, launch out into the deep and let down your net for a catch. And I caught all these fish at his word. He's astonished at the power of Jesus. And here was his reaction. I know the reason. What was his reaction? He is conscious of his own unworthiness in the presence of Jesus. When he's saying, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. He is not saying, I don't want to be around you, Lord. He's saying, I'm not, un I'm not worthy to be around you. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. I am unworthy, is what he's saying. But Peter had seen other miracles. This is Luke 5, remember. Go back to the previous chapter, at least in glance there as you have time. And you'll see Jesus had worked other miracles that Peter had seen. But this seemed to be a turning point for Peter. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now look at verse 10. Peter sought to come, or Jesus sought to come, Peter's fears. And telling him, let's take that fear and anxiety and turn it to love and to respect. And he said, do not be afraid. You seem to be afraid. Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Don't be afraid. From now on you'll catch men. From now on you'll catch men. Take that fear and that anxiety and turn it into love and to respect. I want to suggest to you that God calls us to be humble, just like Peter was humble. God calls us to be humble. Matthew chapter 18, when the disciples were arguing about who is the greatest, there was a question of humility there. And Jesus said that you must humble yourself like a little child. And the one who does so is the greatest in the kingdom. Let's turn in our Bibles over to 1 Peter, if you will. 1 Peter chapter 5. Verses 5 and 6. Likewise, you younger, submit yourselves to your elders... Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. God calls us to be humble. But just like with Peter, there may be times that's hard. What's well, easy to, in this setting to talk about we need to be humble and acknowledge, oh yeah, we need to be humble. There's times it may be hard. Like when? There may be times that we actually think we're better than someone. 
I cite Luke 18. Remember the, the Pharisee and the publican, that story? God, I think I'm not like other men, even as this publican. Do you ever look at someone and think, I'm glad I'm not like them? And I'm glad I'm so much holier than them, and I'm glad I'm more righteous than they are. It's hard sometimes to be humble when we actually, deep down in our heart, think we're better than someone else. It may be hard to be humble when we think we're of value. That was the argument of the, of the who is the greatest in the kingdom, who brings more value. I think I bring more value, someone may think, to the kingdom and to this church than others. If you think you're of more value and more important to the kingdom than someone else, we may be having a tough time being humble. When we think we're stronger, like Galatians 6, one who thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But if you think you're stronger than you really are, it's hard to be humble. Or maybe we think we know more than others. And we kind of look down upon them because they have inferior knowledge to us. It may be hard to be humble. Nevertheless. Nevertheless. What do we learn from that? Obey even if it seems unreasonable. Try even if it seems impossible. Continue on even if you're weary. Be humble even if it's hard. And last of all, forsake all even if what you're forsaking is important. Forsake all, even if what we're forsaking is important. Now, Jesus called upon his disciples, these followers, to be his disciples, which demanded that they forsake all. So let's go back to our text in Luke chapter 5. If you've left that, let's go back to Luke 5 and notice in verse 10. Or verse 11. So when they had brought their boats to land, those boats that were filled, they forsook all and followed him. I want you to think about what they just did. They left their business and they left their boats. It wasn't much, but it was all they had. They left their business and they left their boats. And that was when they'd had the best day they had ever had. Now remember a moment ago I said when they had fished all night and caught nothing and they're washing their nets, if any time they thought about giving up fishing, that would be the time. But they didn't. And if there ever was a time you'd think, I want to keep on fishing and I'm not ready to give it up, I'm not ready to give this boat up and this business up, and I'm not ready to walk away, it would be after the best day you'd ever had in fishing. They left their business in their boats. They left their family. Matthew's account says they left their father as well as their boats. And they left others. There were servants that they left. Mark chapter 1 and verse 20. They left others. So they walked away from their father. They walked away from their business. They walked away from their boats. They walked away from their success. Go back to our text. At verse 11 of Luke chapter 5, it says, when they brought their boats to land, they forsook all. Now I want you to notice this. The reason they're doing that is the one whom they're following, what they're becoming and what they're going to be doing far exceeds in value and importance of anything they're leaving behind. Was the, were those important boats? It must have been they fished out of them. Was their father very, oh yes, he was important. 
Was the business successful? Apparently they had been fishing and that night they hadn't caught anything till, till Jesus made them catch some things. But what they're becoming and what they're, the one whom they're following and what they're going to be doing far exceeds in value. Now here's something else I want you to notice. They did. Their forsaking and leaving was immediate, not days later. They didn't say, yeah, Lord, we want to follow you. But see, we've got this business now. We've got these fish to see too. We've got to get these sold. I guess we've got to do something with these boats. And we've got to see if we can find somebody to help our dad out in this fishing business. And we've got people that are depending on it. We've got, to, we've got to get everything arranged. As soon as we get all these loose ends tied up, then we'll come and follow you. Go back to our text at verse 11. So when they brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed. When they brought them to land that very day, they forsook all. I want to suggest to you that discipleship demands that we forsake all. The Lord should always come first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Matthew 6 and verse 33. 1 Peter chapter 3 and in verse 15. Sanctify the Lord God in your heart. That means you put him first and foremost in your life. The Lord should always come first. I cite Matthew chapter 19, the rich young ruler, the Lord wasn't first in his life. It looked like it was. He come running to Jesus, according to Mark's account, eager to accept what Jesus had to say. And when Jesus told him to go sell all that he has and give to the poor, he walked away because he had great possessions. The Lord wasn't first in his life. What I want to tell you is it may cost you something to be a disciple. It did these disciples. The Lord said, come and I want you to be my disciple and I want to make you fishers of men. And it costs them something, and it may cost you something as well. It may not be a boat, it may not be a business, but it may be money. Well, I'm not talking about the money you may give on the first day of the week. It may cost you that. But it may cost you money you could have made doing things that were not in harmony with God. It might have been a job you gave up. It may cost you money, it may cost you your job. And therefore it cost you money. Some people have changed their jobs because they became Christians. They gave up income because they have become Christians. It may cost you your friends. You may cut off relationships of dear friends that are a detriment to your Christianity. You may have to give that up. It may cost you to be a disciple. Far more than a boat or business. It may cost you family relationships. Some of you sitting here and perhaps some of those on Zoom this morning are those that when they obeyed the gospel, their family cut them off, had nothing to do with them anymore. It just cost them their family. Mom and dad don't say anything to them anymore. Brothers and sisters have no relationship. The children cut them off because they took a stand for what's right. It may cost you time. We need to be willing to forsake all to follow him. If we're not willing to forsake everything there is, we're not fit for the kingdom. Jesus said the one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom. What have we seen in our study this morning? What we've seen is nevertheless, nevertheless, lessons in discipleship. We should obey even if even if it seems unreasonable. We should try, even if it seems impossible. We're going to continue on, even if we become weary. We're going to be humble. 
even if it's hard, we're going to forsake all, even if it is important. Lessons in discipleship. I'm going to sign off of our Zoom in Kentucky, and we're going to have an invitation song here, so we're signing off of that. Those of you who are following in the songbook, turn to the number that's already been announced. We're going to stand and sing an invitation song in a moment. Perhaps you have not yet become a disciple. Perhaps you've not yet been obedient to the gospel. Would you become a disciple even this very morning? Would you become a Christian? Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins? Would you acknowledge your faith in Christ and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and sing?